The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawkbox. The headlines this hour. Standard Chartered's Hong Kong listed shares rise as the lender beats estimates with a 16% jump in third quarter profit but flags growing headwinds due to geopolitical tensions. We're going to hear from CFO Andy Holford in just a few minutes' time. Airbus posts a rise in third-quarter net income but cuts its 2019 delivery guidance while the CEO of Boeing admits mistakes during a tense hearing on Capitol Hill over problems with the 737 MAX. L'Oreal beats third-quarter sales forecasts as the French cosmetics maker joins a list of companies to benefit from strong Asian demand despite the unrest in Hong Kong. Auto mega merger, Italian US automaker Fiat Chrysler and French rival PSA are reportedly in talks to merge in a deal that would create a near $50 billion car giant. And UK lawmakers back Prime Minister Boris Johnson's call for a December 12th general election in an effort to break the Brexit impasse. Oh, I think it was barely a month ago. Good morning, everybody, by the way. Barely a month ago, I think, that I was over in uh, Zurich, sitting before the chairman and the head of the audit committee, listening to a tale of woe around the departure of Iqbal Khan over to UBS. More on that a little bit later, because no doubt Jamana will have some questions for Tijan Tiam later. But we've got Credit Suisse third quarter numbers, and that is the main business for the day. That Iqbal Khan issue, bit of a side story for us today. We're going to focus down on the earnings. So we've got a pre-tax income number of 1.1 billion. That's up 70%. Net income uh, giving us a, a Swiss franc 881 million number. That's up 108% uh, year on year. The return on tangible equity number coming in on the third quarter, 9% up from 4.5% in the third quarter of 2018. I will remind you the target that the group has set itself is for 10 to 11% for full year 2019. So it'll be interesting to get a line later on to see how TJAN feels the run rate is going to get to that 10 to 11% target. Uh, in terms of the CET1 ratio, fine, 12.65%. Plenty of capital there. The um, group says cash flow has been strong at the beginning of uh, the fourth quarter of 2019, and the current cash balance currently stands at more than 350 million US dollars. Uh, and the company goes on to talk about its undrawn credit facility at this point. Um, here's the rider. We uh, head into the final quarter of 2019 expecting to see the usual seasonal slowdown as a result of the holiday season in many parts of the world. Uh, we believe the long-term outlook remains attractive in wealth management, but we also expect headwinds from the ongoing challenging geopolitical 
environment. What will also be interesting, I think, as we comb through these numbers is just to get a sense of how the uh, capital markets business is doing. The trading division actually rebounded quite strongly, I think, the last quarter. But it has been a, an issue in terms of the downgrades on earnings expectations before that. And of course, um, what's happening in corporate advisory? We have seen a little bit of a pickup in activity around that. So that will also be useful to hear. And I should just point out to the audience, Andy Hulford is with us on set this morning, who may or may not have something to do uh, to say on Credit Suisse. Do you want to chime in? I was just going to jump in and say we've got four points for focusing on the earnings today because last time you were pouring over Credit Suisse, mm. it was a case of who done it mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the spy scandal. Do you think we've moved on past that? Because it seemed to be some pressure from the UBS side for Iqbal Khan. It was re the report circling that he was under pressure to drop any uh, legal proceedings against his old employer, Credit Suisse. So just, do you think we've moved on with the naming and the removal of key employees involved in the process? Um, as long as um, I think that there is a common front on this from the Swiss banking community and there is no evidence that Tijan Tian actually knew what was being done by the CFO, then I think we can, or the COO, sorry, I think we can move on from this. Um, and having that long conversation with um, uh, Axel Weber, the UBS chairman, at the IMF, he was very adamant. He said, look, we want Swiss banking to go back to being what Swiss banking should be, which is kind of boring, kind of staid, very traditional, and not the kind of stories that involve um, private investigators mm. stalking employees in the middle of Zurich, trying to take photographs of them, um, poaching staff. I think the other thing that's worth noting is the share price reaction we saw in the wake of the spying scandal that investors really shrugged it off, took it in stride, the news around that uh, that spying scandal. And one other thing that I uh, will look forward to hearing in Shimana's interview is the uh, on the cost front, of course, part of this three-year overhaul that Credit Suisse has embarked on has involved bringing down their fixed costs very heavily. So we'll be uh, keen to see the detail around what they've done in terms of costs this quarter. Brilliant. We'll um, just point out to you then, we will hear from Credit Suisse's CEO, Tijan Tiam, at 8 Central European time. Let's just tick off Deutsche Bank. Messy old set of numbers, of course, with a huge transformation taking place. But some clear messages coming through from Christian Seving is that all four core businesses were profitable in the quarter. So they are seeing some decent numbers. So the core bank, which excludes the capital release unit, made a pre-tax profit of 353 million euros. And when it comes to the overall uh, Q3 net loss, though, that has tallied up to 832 million euros, a pre-tax loss of 687 million euros. The message on transformation, it is on track. That's right in the headline in the release this morning as it has crossed. It says on track to meet their 2019 cost reduction targets when it comes to common equity T1 ratio that is stable at 13.4%. Non-interest expenses uh, have uh, been tabled up at 5.8 billion euros. The bank says, uh, CEO says, despite having launched the most comprehensive restructuring in two decades, we have delivered profits in our four core businesses and grew loans under management. Uh, so we're going to be diving into that a little bit further in the program as uh, we see just how the company will progress after that dramatic overhaul. Joining us will be the CFO of Deutsche Bank, James von Motka, at 8 o'clock CET. Another banking news, Standard Chartered has posted a 16% rise in quarterly pre-tax profit, beating analyst estimates compiled by the lender. Standard Chartered said an uptick in business from corporate clients helped it offset the unrest in its core Hong Kong market. 
As uh, Jeff mentioned a moment ago, Andy Halford has joined us, CFO of Standard Chartered. Welcome, Andy. Nice to see you. Thank you. A lot of challenges uh, across the region, uh, particularly when it comes to two big areas where you're servicing clients, Hong Kong, I think specifically with the protests and the trade war that's been playing out between the United States and China. Just give us a sense of how some of those challenges are impacting the day-to-day -day business. Yeah, we, we do seem to operate in many parts of the world where there are interesting things going on at the moment. Um, I, I think the quarter overall we've been really pleased with and uh, to have a top line growing up 7% or 8% and the bottom line 16% with everything that is happening around us I think is, is a good performance. Um, if you look around the world then clearly Hong Kong which has had a lot of spotlight on it recently because of the unrest has been more difficult but we're still growing there. Um, the business is actually performing very well. Uh, maybe the growth is a little bit lower than it might otherwise have been, but it's certainly not been a big problem for us at this point in time. We, we look forward and, and hope that that situation will improve over a period of time. But we've had top line growth, bottom line growth in our Hong Kong business in the last quarter and indeed for the year as a whole. So it, it is actually performing well. Um, the US-China situation also, for us actually, that's quite finely balanced because a lot of our activity is within the Asia corridors, not so much between the US and, and uh, Asia. And hence, actually, the overall impact there has been relatively muted. I want to get into the spillover effect from monetary policy as we waited out for a Fed decision today that could be fairly significant for markets. I know a number of fund managers have focused on whether there might be a, a window of time now where we're seeing weakening in the US dollar and some of that uh, might be related to monetary policy and risk on, risk off. Do you see ramifications from a Fed rate cut if it happens today and what the pathway looks like in future around the dot plots for, for the interest rates cuts? Well, it, it has changed a lot. If you go back to the start of the year, the general expectation in markets was that we would see interest rates just slightly rising over a period of time. And you roll the clock forward six, seven months, and the views changed a lot during that period. So clearly the market is now expecting, indeed, seeing some reductions in interest rates coming through. Um, that will, for most banks, it is better to have slightly higher interest rates than lower interest rates. So that is a bit of a headwind, which obviously we prefer not to have. On the other hand, things do change. And over nine months, we've gone slightly down on expectations. Who knows, another nine, 18, 27 months, just where the expectations will be at that point in time. Um, I think overall, so long as it is a progressive reduction, most businesses will accommodate it and acclimatise to it. And that is much better than shocks to interest rates, which is not what we're seeing at the moment. Um, so it may dampen a little bit of growth. On the other hand, it will make some businesses a little bit more resilient because their interest costs actually reduce as a consequence. Now, one of the areas I know investors were focusing on coming into your results today was asset quality, certainly in the wake of what we've seen in Hong Kong in the wake of trade tensions. And I see that you said overall asset quality broadly stable, no new signs of stress. But when would you expect asset quality to begin to deteriorate if we are going to see that happen in the wake of these protests, given it has only been five months or so since they kicked off? Yeah. So we operate in 60 countries. And clearly, across that diversity of countries, there will be some stresses, there will be some lesser stresses. And on the average, across the piece, we really are not seeing a huge amount of change. Where we are being more focused, not surprisingly, is particularly the China businesses that are involved with the US. Um, the Hong Kong businesses, particularly the smaller businesses that may be a little bit less robust, and we are keeping a very close eye on those. At the moment, we're not seeing any significant movement, but obviously we've got to be very cautious and thoughtful about that, and that is what we are being. 
but in an overall portfolio of the size we have got, you know, it is a relatively small part and it is behaving reasonably well. So it doesn't mean to say that it won't get more difficult. In fact, it may well get a bit more difficult, but in the overall scheme of things, it's not a big issue for us. And it's interesting, you talk about, <clears throat> Andy, things getting difficult. One of the things you flagged up is obviously this line about slower global growth and the risk of that going forward here. Yes. The ambition remains to get 10% plus on the ROTE by 2021. Yep. How hard is that process going to become for you if we actually get some of these uh, chickens coming home to roost on, on China and elsewhere? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. 2015, we were actually slightly negative on our return on equity. And what we said earlier this year is that pursuit of 10% is where we really need to get to, to get to double digits. It's a rallying cry. It's an important point for the business. We are making good progress. You know, we have been for the three quarters so far, 8% plus. Now, the second, the last quarter of the year has slightly higher charges of bank levy, et cetera, so that weighs it down a little bit. What we said is the pursuit of that 10% absolutely is something we should be going after. Now, without doubt, the interest rate outlook and the geopolitical is a bit tougher now than it was when we said that back in February. And so we're going to have to sort of work harder to do it. We will do what we can do to try to get there. We're not going to do silly things that take uh, shortcuts. We've been down that route before and didn't come up with a happy ending. Um, so, you know, we're not going to go there, but really aligning the business to say the 10% is a key number. Let's really go for it. Um, and we'll see back to the previous point what happens. At the moment, there is concern on some elements of the sort of geopolitical. Who knows in the next few months whether some of those maybe actually do get relieved a little bit. And actually, we're sitting here in a period of time <coughs> a little bit less concerned on some of those fronts than we are now. So we're going to go for it. It is a little bit tougher than it was before, but we're going to see where we can get to. And you obviously are managing the money here and keeping a close eye on things. What, what is the opportunity to give further cash back to shareholders at this point? Um, we've given back um, a billion dollars so far this year, and that's the first time we've actually returned money to shareholders for several years. So that, that is a good start. Um, a few years ago, we obviously uh, took some money the other way. Um, what we said is that we are now in the middle of our target range on capital, and by implication, anything further that we generate, unless we have a use for it in the business, is capable of being returned to shareholders. We're not unafraid of doing that. In fact, to get our return on equity up, we need to do more of that. So as and when we get to a position where we think there is sufficient surplus and there's no obvious other use to put it to, then at that point in time, we will tell the market what we plan to do. And I want to just pitch a question to you about the future of banking, because we've seen enormous changes, particularly by some of the European lenders over the last few months, to downsize in certain areas of banking. And we know after the financial crisis, certain areas of finance were pulled back because of the risk levels, shipping finance being one of them. Do you see a dramatic change in banking where some areas of the industry are just not serviced very well anymore, which could be a problem down the track? Would there be anything that you'd flag up given the, the transformation that you've seen globally? Um, the future of banking, that's, that's a big topic, a very big topic. Um, look, I, I think servicing the economy and servicing individuals will always be there. The question is going to be about how one does that. And particularly in the retail space with digital, with the younger groups that are coming up much more with a mobile-based background, the how one does it, I think, is what is more likely to change. Um, we've done a lot with rolling out mobile-based platforms in Africa, and the speed of take-up of new customers there has been extraordinary. So it is clearly a different way of servicing a market. 
over time, there will clearly be sectors banks focus more on and less upon. But I think actually the big changes are really what technology is going to bring to bear. And it isn't just in the retail space, in the corporate space, a lot of transaction activity can now be computerized, is computerized. And that sort of bifurcation of where a computer can do stuff versus where a human actually is bringing additional value to something which is over and above what can be automated. So I think it is the how that is going to change rather than necessarily the what. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, fantastic uh, answers there to some of our questions. And thank you very much for the time. Andrew Helfer with us, the CFO of Standard Chartered. What is a busy day for the banks today, Jeff? Yeah, PPI is taking its toll yet again here as we uh, look at Santander, the group posting a 75% drop in third quarter net profit. They still beat expectations, but the Spanish lender was hit by one-off charges of over 1.6 billion euros on its UK division. Some of that was uh, PPI, some of that was a write down of goodwill. The bank had a CET1 ratio of 11.3% at the end of September. Uh, still to come then, the UK is on track for its first December election since 1923 as Prime Minister Boris Johnson urges lawmakers to get Brexit done. Will this finally draw a line under the story? I wouldn't hold your breath. We'll have more on that in just a moment. Plus, we are going to speak to a whole host of top executives from the likes of Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank and Volkswagen on the very busy earnings day. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshan, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Well, it's a very busy day for earnings. It's also a big day in the central banking world. The Fed is expected to cut rates for the third time in a row today, a move which would take the federal funds rate to between 1.5 and 1.75 percent. Markets will be watching Chairman Jerome Powell's press conference for signs the central bank will pause the cutting cycle going forward. The latest CNBC Fed survey shows another cut is not expected until February 2020. As uh, Juliana mentions, it is all about the Fed and markets turning somewhat cautious in session yesterday ahead of the central bank meeting. And what we've got uh, across the board, you could see a reversal for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq. Worth pointing out, though, at one point in the session, we had a fresh intraday peak for the S&P uh, climbing to its 13th all-time high of 2019. So again, chasing uh, fresh levels on the markets before reducing back to uh, the reading that we saw at the close of the session, down about two and a half points. The Dow, one of the big impacts for the major markets, uh, including the SP Nasdaq as well, Apple, and don't forget Apple is reporting later on today, huge uh, cap stock and has uh, big ramifications for markets. So another catalyst if you're looking for some of the reading behind markets. In terms of what we're watching too closely, uh, uh, some of the earnings, but trade issues, 
investors have moved a lot of these stocks up uh, to a fairly high level based on hopes of a phase one trade deal. And a couple of casualties in the session yesterday, the BATS, uh, the Chinese stocks, uh, Baidu, Alibaba and Sina all are reversing in session. You can see uh, some uh, fairly decent sized falls for Sina down 2.4%. Uh, let's get to the Asian markets and see how they're traveling in session today across the region uh, for many of those key markets, uh, mostly in the red cautious day two ahead of uh, the Federal Reserve and whether there will be a rate cut delivered today and crucially what that pipeline will look like for the coming months. About half of a percent off some of those core markets from Japan to China, Hong Kong, Australia down a little more heavily, eight tenths of a percent. The opening calls here in Europe, we saw a reversal yesterday in the trade, uh, slight lightening up uh, for the benchmark. The Stocks Europe 600 down just over a tenth of a percent. The DAX uh, tilted slightly weaker. And you can see this morning we are chasing a little bit of green on the Italian market, uh, but not too much to report for the rest of them, either flat or weaker for the Zetradax is what we're witnessing early on. So the market's uh, probably still waiting it up for what could be a risk event around the Fed too. Jeff? Uh, risk, talking about risk events, let's just set the Fed to one side for a moment this morning. The other uh, big story we need to discuss is uh, whether we're going to have a general election here in the UK. The uh, country is set apparently to hold this election on December the 12th. That's after opposition Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn agreed to the vote following the formal approval of a three-month Brexit extension. The UK's upper legislative chamber, the House of Lords, is expected to sign off on the election later today. Uh, Willem joins us with more. So yesterday we were, you know, talking about whether this is going to happen and uh, who's going to blink first. Has Jeremy Corbyn blinked first, given that Labour is doing so poorly in the polls relative to the Lib Dems and the Conservatives? I don't think he'd characterise it as that. And clearly when he came out yesterday and said, you know, we want an election, this is what we're going to do in an election, uh, he was trying to project a positive message. But I think it's really important to note, when you look at the vote last night in the House of Commons for this December 12th election, who voted? Who didn't vote? Who voted against it? Quite a few Labour members didn't vote at all. Some of them claimed that they were mis mis misdirected by their whips. Some of them voted against it. The Liberal Democrats and the Scottish National Party, who had suggested the idea of an election on December the 9th over the weekend, they didn't vote at all. So an indication there as to the desire to hold this election uh, between the Conservatives and Labour. Very interesting to see what's going to happen there. We had half of those uh, Conservative rebels, they were allowed back into the party parliamentary fold yesterday. Um, the whip was restored, to use the parliamentary language. Um, one of them, of course, who was expelled last month has gone over to the Liberal Democrats. You had a number of MPs announcing they were stepping down at this election. So there will be wholesale change in this parliament. Whether that wholesale change will bring the kind of stable majority for either of the main parties that would allow a consistent policy on Brexit to be pursued, we don't know because the polls are a national number. And because we've got first past the post in this country, saying that the Conservatives are 10 percentage points ahead doesn't necessarily translate into a parliamentary majority. We've seen that in the past. And so it's going to be very interesting to see whether either party can campaign successfully on a Brexit policy that will deliver them that majority. Big test around democracy still, I think. A lot of outside eyes watching the UK in this process that has unfolded with every version of an amendment put forward and many political battles being waged. And what we saw yesterday was that move to try and push forward an amendment to allow a vote for 16 to 17-year-olds. And you've got to think, 
quite unusual to try and change the age for voting, which would potentially change the way people feel about Brexit or the, or the overall outcome for those who might have a Brexit to deal with in their, their lifetime. But at the same time, changing the nature of who can vote when there's been a pushback from many quarters about a second referendum on Brexit, you can see the challenges for that amendment getting through. I mean, it's also a question of whether that was the appropriate forum, mm -hmm. right? Because it was a, a very a rushed effort. Process. Yeah, in a sense, you know, if you're going to change the franchise in any country, surely that should be a big national conversation, uh, as it has been in Scotland, for instance, where you have much younger people able to vote in local elections and European elections. Not, not European elections, local elections. So the big question going forward is if the Liberal Democrats, if the Scottish National Party want to see younger people enfranchised in the future, will that be very much part of their electoral platform? Will that be something they'll push for in the next parliament to be more widely debated rather than rushed in a late night series of amendments, as you mentioned there? It uh, feels as though many voters at this point are identifying more with Remain versus Leave as opposed to any political party. So how is that factoring into the polling that we're seeing and the sort of predictability we should actually put a place on the polls that we're seeing? The campaigners who want the UK to stay inside the EU, they point to the fact that in poll after poll after poll, with very few exceptions, there is a majority in the country in favour of Remain, and it, as you right, rightly say, cuts across parties. But once again, that doesn't necessarily translate into a majority in Parliament, and that's the real challenge. 52% of the country in favour of leaving the EU in that referendum, but a Parliament that was definitely a majority in favour of remaining, and that's going to be the challenge after this election as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.